Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our series on Brave Feminine Leadership. Today, I'm joined by Katrina Cuthall. Fantastic to have you here, Katrina. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, for our audience, before you and I sort of kick into the conversation, I might just take a minute to just share your bio, um, just to help people understand a little bit about who you are. So Katrina is a senior partner in Bain & Company. Bain & Company is a global management consultancy headquartered in Boston. Katrina has more than 22 years of management consulting experience in Australia and the UK. She's leader in Bain's financial services practice with a focus on customer strategy, customer experience, payments, loyalty, and digital transformation. Katrina has played a number of leadership roles within Bain & Company. She previously led Bain's customer practice in Asia Pacific. She is currently a member of Bain's Global Partner Promotion and Compensation Committee. Katrina holds a PhD in finance from Edinburgh University and a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. She lives in Sydney with her husband and her two children who are aged eight and ten. So again, as I said, it's lovely to have you here. And Katrina, I might just ask um, or, or hand over to you now, for the people in our audience who haven't come across you before, would you mind sharing perhaps a little bit about your journey, your passion and what drives you? Yeah, sure. Um, obviously, I've been in the one place for quite a while. <laughs> you know, so um, 22 coming on 23 years um, is obviously quite a, a long period of time to spend with one organisation. Um, and indeed, I think, you know, even within management consulting firms, um, you know, there's only, a, I suppose, a portion of us that um, continue on for such a long period of time. Some people see it as a springboard to other opportunities and other roles. But um, fairly early on in my career at Bain, um, there was a lot that excited me about working here. Um, and it's continued to be an amazing platform for me for, yeah, 22 and a half years since. And um, I think you um, briefly shared with me that investment banking was an option at one stage and you didn't go that way. Yeah, I mean, I did a, um, I did a PhD in finance, as you said, up front. So I had a few different options, investment banking and funds management, you know, the potential of actually working on the trading floor and foreign exchange was something. And um, I had quite a diverse range of opportunities when I finished my degree, both here and in the UK. Um, but there are a few things that really struck me about the opportunity in management consulting and, and Bain in particular. Um, and, and those things have, have remained true and in place, you know, ever since that interview 23 or 24 years ago. Sounds like you um, made the right choice. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I was fortunate in that I landed both in an industry that was well suited to my capabilities and within that industry in a firm that had a culture that was really well suited um, to my values 
um, and the things that I'm good at. And so I was sort of lucky that I managed to get the double whammy. Um, and, you know, that all those things which, which I can go into are the reason why, you know, I'm still here all these years later. Um, you know, and they, they are really three things. First of all, just this ability to continually get presented with really tough problems, gnarly problems to yeah. solve, to break down and to solve. Um, you know, and sometimes these are problems that, you know, my clients and our clients have been wrestling with for a long time. Um, and I get to tap into all the great expertise of my colleagues around the world, because often these are not new problems. Mm. Um, I get to work with my teams at Bain to get the relevant data and the facts and use those to help drive um, the problem solving and to drive a recommendation. And then I get to work with senior leaders in uh, my client organizations and our client organizations to figure out, well, what needs to be different this time? Or, you know, what needs to be in place to actually um, land this particular recommendation and drive some lasting change? So um, you're a problem solver then. Is that what, that's what really gets you going? Yeah, and that's sort of one of the reasons why I did a PhD. I really liked the opportunity of taking a big problem that hadn't been solved before, chunking it down, and then attacking it. Um, so that's one piece. I think the other piece is that I love, you know, having an impact and generating results. So, you know, with some of those big problems also comes the potential to have significant impact um, and to, you know, open the newspaper or these days log on to a news website or look up the Fin Review or the Financial Times and see that one of my clients' performance on a particular dimension doesn't need to be financial, has changed course uh, as the result of the work that the team that I was leading um, undertook. And so having a chance to have an impact and leave a, a client organisation or a part of an organisation in a better state than when we found it um, has always been really motivating to me. That's fantastic. So tell us um, about that journey then. So where did you join? And I know you've spent time in, in Australia and the UK. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe some of the key decisions you had to make along the way. So I joined uh, as an associate consultant, which is just an entry level analyst role um, at Bain in Sydney. Um, I joined in 1998. Um, and actually, at that point in time, it was just when things were building up to the dot-com kind of boom and bust period. And so during that time, I got to work on a lot of great new business models and, and opportunities. And then I got an opportunity actually just before the Sydney Olympics, <laughs> for which I had a lot of tickets, <laughs> um, to go over to London um, because our London office was really booming at that time and they just needed more people. So I got an opportunity to go to London. Um, I went immediately into our private equity business in London, which both um, supports private equity funds on diligence, but then also gets involved in uh, work with their portfolio companies to drive improvement. So I went straight into that area of our business and I was in it for a good couple of years. Um, and it was an amazing experience. It really sharpened all of my problem solving skills. Um, and I got to work on some pretty high profile, at least potential deals and, and actual deals that happened. 
um, in London. And it was a great time. I was in my mid to late 20s. Fantastic. So it was sort of a perfect time for that sort of challenge. Um, yeah, I ended up deciding that I wanted to stay in London um, because of the variety and opportunities of, um, to get involved in um, different industries um, that I maybe wouldn't have if I came back to Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but as time wore on, I realised that I had to make a choice <laughs> Um, you know, between sort of potting myself longer term in the UK versus returning to be um, closer to my family uh, who are still based in New Zealand. And so okay. I chose I chose to come home. <laughs> um, it was also a good point because I was within, you know, striking distance of the partner promotion point. Mm-hmm. And so it would have gotten a lot harder to come home if I'd stayed for a bit longer. So I decided, you know, it was the ideal timing. <coughs> okay, so you've landed back here in Sydney and you're, you then made partner reasonably quickly from that point, didn't you? Yes, I mean, um, with the exception of taking some time off to go travelling, it was a rather continuous path. Um, and so I was promoted to partner after about 10 years in okay. the firm. And is that um, a normal kind of time frame or is that? Yeah, that was roughly roughly normal <laughs> from, okay. uh, from analyst level as opposed to, you know, some people join it at higher levels in the organisation, you know, after they have previous work experience or after they've done an MBA. Um, but it was roughly, um, you know, not pretty normal timing. Okay. So I wanted to ask you along the way, um, firstly, um, how important in your kind of career journey have sort of sponsors and and role models been? A lot of people talk about, um, you know, needing mentoring particularly, but in this series, one of the themes that's come out is really needing someone who's an active sponsor for your career, who you work with. Can you talk to us about how that's worked for you or has that worked for you? Yeah, I've been really fortunate, actually, in both London and here in Australia. I've had amazing um, sponsors and mentors and coaches, but the sponsors have been most instrumental. And the reason they've been instrumental is because they really believed in me. And so they pulled me into situations um, that maybe I wouldn't have been pulled into otherwise. And many of those situations became pretty foundational in terms of some of the work that I've been able to do since. Okay. Uh, I do firmly believe, though, that a relationship with a sponsor is very much a two-way street mm-hmm. because a sponsor in, is, in effect, almost co-branding, you know, their reputation with yours. And so it's not all on the sponsor. <laughs> the sponsee, you know, has to ensure that they are genuinely leaning in to make the most of the opportunity or the relationship and getting the most out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, at any time when I felt like I was in a valued sponsor sponsee relationship, I did really lean in and I lent in with an intent to make the most out of that particular situation and just strengthen that relationship. What does that mean when you say that, um, you know, we've all seen the term sort of lean in um, through Sheryl Sandberg, but when you say you lent into those opportunities, what did that look like? Yeah, well, I first, of, first of all, I think 
it's that if someone else had confidence in me to get involved in something and do a good job on something, that I also came into that situation with confidence in myself. Um, I think that's very important. So that um, any feelings of maybe not being well equipped for that particular situation, I tried to put to one side as much as possible. Um, I think the other piece um, is about making sure then that um, while we were working together, it was very much a two-way street. So I was open and honest about areas where I didn't feel I knew maybe what the right approach was or the answer was, but also where I did have a point of view, I was very proactive in sharing that. Mm. <coughs> and so it wasn't about, okay, you've given me this opportunity now, I've got it, don't worry, but rather actually continuing to engage with my sponsor who I was working with in that situation and make sure that together we would be stronger than kind of either of us working on our own. Okay. Um, and when you referenced before it needing to really be a two-way street, have you seen some situations where you think people uh, kind of hand over all responsibility to the sponsor and, and don't get as actively involved as they should? Is that where that comment sort of comes from? Yeah, well, I, I also believe that if someone has created an opportunity for you, then you have to try to bring as much of your full self and your energy to that opportunity in return um, and not expect that, you know, everything is going to be sort of sorted or solved <laughs> for you. Um, you talked about putting those feelings. So if you had any feelings of sort of self-doubt about your capability or otherwise, and we all have them, you talked about putting those to the side. Do you have, is there a way that worked for you to be able to put them to the side? <laughs> Um, well, look, I had my fair share of ups and downs on that dimension, like many people. Um, but I did over time realise that um, there was a really strong correlation between the level of confidence that I felt in a situation and my effectiveness and my enjoyment and energy that I had in a situation. And so I began to realise that if I wasn't feeling that confident, that actually the worst thing was almost to sort of shy away <laughs> and feel like, you know, maybe I wasn't very well equipped and feel nervous and feel like I couldn't speak up and voice a view as to what I thought the answer might be. Mm -hmm. And that on the other hand, if where I felt like I was lacking in confidence, if instead I forced myself to actually develop a point of view that I forced myself to reach out to others that maybe had expertise or experience that I didn't have. And I really forced myself, therefore, to come up with a perspective and lean into it versus shying away because I didn't feel I was well positioned or equipped. Mm. Then everything would end up better. <laughs> I would enjoy it more. The people that I was working with would enjoy it more. Um, it would often actually turn out that others felt uncertain about a particular aspect of the answer too. And by admitting that, actually others would admit actually that they weren't so sure. Um, and so I just felt like it enabled a sort of flywheel to spin versus maybe keeping those feelings of uncertainty to myself. That is fabulous on so many different levels because 
when I hear that, um, I'm picturing you going into situations and, and a lot of male or female would go into these situations where you're perhaps a bit overwhelmed and intimidated by the situation around you and therefore, um, you know, you tend to sort of not say anything. Um, and often, you know, we've talked about at various points in this series about um, I'm often asked to help them and find their voice. And this is just a perfect example of where you have been incredibly thoughtful and really, you know, strategic around what do you need to do to prepare yourself to go into those situations, recognising that um, if you go in confident, you actually, it actually does feed feed off of each other. And um, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I just, I wanted to ask along your journey, we kind of got to the point of um, you've made partner and somewhere along the way, you have started a family. I'm not sure quite of the timing of that, but um, maybe you can, can you share that? This is a point that is extremely challenging for a lot of females and I wanted to just share before we go in there the Parenthood released a report in the last couple of weeks and the report is called Making Australia the Best Place in the World to Be a Parent and they talk in that report about the motherhood penalty and I won't go into the detail I would suggest people go and get a copy it's very easily available but there's some interesting things here where they talk about one in two mothers report some form of discrimination in the workplace or um, report that they're reluctant to take advantage of flexible working for fear of impact on career or on promotional opportunities. So I've sort of fed you, fed you that up and I don't want to presuppose that that was your experience in any way, but I just wonder as we talk about how you navigated that space, if we can have that at the backdrop as just a reference point. Yeah. Over to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had um, I had my first child, my daughter, um, about um, just over a year after being promoted to partner. It actually wasn't planned that way. It just so happened that yeah. that's when the timings came together. I, I didn't kind of sit there and say, I'm waiting to get to partner before I start having children. That wasn't it at all. It's just that was the point at which I reached that stage in my life journey. Well, I was going to say congratulations. And, you know, as a lot of us know, it's not necessarily predictable. So congratulations <laughs> at any point that that happened. <laughs> um, and, you know, I found the off-ramp and the on-ramp incredibly difficult. Um, you know, just even small things like feeling very physically tired, you know, on both sides. Um, mm. And... Um, you know, not, not having the same necessarily energy and capacity that I might have had. And so the first thing I had to do was be a little kinder on myself mm. and recognise that some things had fundamentally shifted. I think um, also when you grow up in, a, in a, any kind of professional services firm, you're used to sort of keeping in lockstep with um, a set of people you regard as your peer group. So the other thing I had to let go of was that notion mm. that, that somehow I had to kind of keep pace when actually that was never realistic because they had not stepped out and taken time out in the way that I had. And they maybe didn't have the same sets of demands on their time. I come from a, 
household where my husband also has a career and works incredibly hard. And so all the time, you know, we were juggling uh, the demands of being in a dual career household. And so I had to eventually realise, and it took a while, that um, I had to set my own pace and set my own parameters. Um, although it did take a while to kind of lose that sense of sort of my own expectations for what I should be able to do. Um, so I actually did choose to work part-time. Um, I was fortunate in that, you know, I work in an organisation that's very supportive of part-time and flexible models. And I decided to work four days a week. Um, and it was largely almost a pressure release valve. Mm -hmm. have that fifth day that I could choose to, to use as, as I wanted to. And sometimes it was just catching my breath. Sometimes it was catching up on sleep. And sometimes if there were pieces of work that I really had to do, well, I did them. Mm. Um, but it was my choice. <laughs> um, and I got to decide how I kind of spent that fifth day. Um, and so I do genuinely believe that you know, that was a key element of making it all possible. Um, the other key thing I did, and I realised, and again, it took me a while to realise this, is that I needed to build um, support at home that was both greater uh, and more flexible than I thought I really needed. You, um, I think I remember us talking about someone gave you that advice. There was some, someone shared something along the way about that. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was a, um, a senior partner in the London office who I bumped into at a global partner meeting. And I must have looked tired. <laughs> and I, I think by then I probably had had my second child. And he sort of asked me, we're, we're almost like walking past each other in a breakfast buffet room. And he asked me how I was doing. And I must have given a less than convincing response because he just said a couple of things. He said, take a long-term kind of career-long view, and then secondly, get more help than you think you really need mm. and pay for more help than you think you really need. Mm. Don't try to scrimp. And then he kind of continued off into the distance, and I'm not sure we even spoke to each other again at that event. Um, but we um, say thank you. We should say thank you now, just in case. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was very impactful. Um, and since then, you know, I've not tried to be a hero and get away with the bare minimum. Mm. I have tried to build the, the support and get the support in place that is both bigger, better, more flexible than I could actually get away with. Um, so um, I think a lot of people share that feeling about um, coming back to work and um, looking at the people that were your peer group um, and perhaps almost feeling a bit of a yearning, um, you know, and, and conflicting feelings because on the one hand you're, um, you know, you've, you've chosen this, this path and, and it's exciting and all those sorts of things, but there's a bit of a yearning and it does take time, doesn't it, to get used to the fact that, um, you know, you're, you're just on a different paced track, really. Yeah. Um, now, look, I think the other thing that happens, and it's a trap that I felt fell into, is if you've taken some time out, it's really natural that when you do step back in and you come back on the on-ramp, you feel like a ton of stuff has happened without you. 
um, and it can undermine your confidence a bit. And one reaction, and it's a reaction that I was guilty of at times, is almost in an effort to make up for lost time, you try to get involved in too many things. Oh, I can help with that, I can do that. Da, da, da. Um, the problem is that that just fragments you. Um, and it actually makes the situation worse because if you're spreading yourself super thin across many different things, you're maybe not having a significant impact on any of them. Mm. And that, that can actually undermine your confidence even further. Um, and I definitely fell into that trap, particularly the first time. Mm. I came back from maternity leave. And the second time I actually didn't do that, I was lucky I had an opportunity that enabled me to focus. And I did focus to, you know, the exclusion of pretty much everything that I could. Um, and then that was just much better. I was more effective. I brought the best of me to that situation and it was more enjoyable. Was that your idea or was it an opportunity that, you know, someone else or just circumstantial? Like what, what was that? Yeah, it was circumstantial. A former client so happened to need support okay. and the support that they needed was significant enough that I could focus myself on it pretty much entirely. Okay. Um, and so I don't, it wasn't kind of pre-planned on my part. <laughs> it's yeah. only with the benefit of hindsight, I kind of realised that as I think about my two on-ramps, why one was better than the other in terms of how I felt and my confidence and effectiveness. So you used a term with me that um, has sort of stayed with me um, since you and I first first met um, a month or so ago. And it was talking about that period when you came back. I'm not sure if it was first or second time, but how you sort of felt in the wilderness and out of alignment with what was going on. How did you, um, we've talked about the fact that you got support at home and, and worked to, to build that um, very strongly around you. Were there any other things that you did that might be sort of practical or useful for people to hear in terms of how you navigated that feeling? Yeah. Yeah, it is really hard. It's um, this loss of a feeling of relevance. Yeah because the rest of the world has been marching on. They've marched forward without you in many situations. And so I did go through a period of almost feeling a little bit irrelevant. Mm. You know, some situations and opportunities I'd been working on before I went on leave, suddenly other people were driving. Yes. And that can be quite hard to take at a time where you're also feeling a little bit vulnerable and lacking in confidence. Yeah. And it did take a while to sort of, rebuild from there but I began to realize that actually a lot of my underlying capabilities and experiences were still really relevant they were still in some cases unique mm. and that if I made sure that people understood what were those areas that I was really passionate about and I felt that I could make a difference to that if I was a little bit patient I could slowly kind of find my way back into and I think sometimes, again, it's natural to feel impatient, particularly if you're also feeling like you've been out of the loop for a while um, and your confidence is low. You can also feel at the same time impatient, impatient to actually want to get back in the middle of things, to have an impact, you know, to show that just because you were away for a few months that, you know, you can still be effective. Um, 
And uh, so I think I was, I probably, you know, I was possibly my own worst enemy at times because I had that feeling of impatience. Um, and so I had to really step back and say, well, what are the things that I can do that I have experience of, you know, that is still relatively unique and they're differentiated. And, you know, if I make others aware of those things that I'm passionate about, then I can find my way back into the centre. So you have to find those opportunities. Find a way to advocate for yourself hmm. um, at that point in time. Katrina, there will be people watching um, our conversation and, um, you know, you operate at an extraordinary um, level in the organisation that you work at. And, you know, they'll say, I could never do what she does. You know, I could never be Katrina. How would you respond to that? Well, you know, I think we all have different strengths. And, you know, I've often looked at others and, you know, have been admiring and inspired by things that they can do that I feel I can't do. Um, and eventually I realised that just trying to replicate, you know, the 10 things that you think someone else is great at is to recognise actually your own unique strengths and try to work on those and use those as a foundation and get better at those things versus I do think I've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about the things I'm not good at and getting frustrated at that as opposed to saying actually there's a set of things over here that I am good at that I could get even better at if I focus more on those. Yeah. And so that sort of positive mindset of building on your strengths um, the, the other piece that I think has been important, which I talked about earlier, has been this idea of focus. And I've always believed, although I haven't always adhered to this idea, but yep. I've always believed that I can be more effective if I focus on a smaller number of things and do them really well. Mm. Um, and that just appeals to the way my mind works as well. And so I've tried to be disciplined <laughs> about how many things that I take on and I would much rather do a smaller number of things better than yeah. get involved in, in a lot of things at any one time. Um, do you suffer Do you suffer at all from, you hear, you know, I hear the term a lot around motherhood guilt. You know, I'm spreading myself thin, I'm here, there and everywhere. Does that, is that something that, that you think about? Yeah, I mean, particularly when my children were, a bit younger um, you know and I still kind of miss out on things that I would like to be there for um, but what I've tried to really work on is when I am there I'm present yeah <coughs> excuse me we've got, we've got you on a day with a bad cough haven't we feel oh, free I've just to got have... a tickly <laughs> a tickly throat feel free so to, I... feel free to have, a, have a drink of water I'll pause for a sec yeah that would be Katrina, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, have you, we hear the term motherhood guilt. Does that resonate with you at all? Yes, uh, it certainly does. And, um, you know, there's a, there have been many days where I felt guilty because I, you know, you can't be in two places at once. No. Um, and actually pre-COVID, for the last two or three years pre-COVID um, and everyone getting grounded, I did a lot of travel, um, and but it was my own choice. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I didn't have to do that, but I wanted to because of the opportunities that were available, you know, if I did travel. Yeah. Um, and I did feel guilty, but I sort of came to realise, you know, I'm not the only adult <laughs> in my children's life. Um, you know, they've had a wonderful nanny. <laughs> um, you know, they have a father. <laughs> they have school teachers. You know, it's not, I, I don't have to be and can't be the centre of their universe. Yeah. Um, and I also got hung up, I think, on wanting to do things actually that maybe weren't even that important to them that other people could do for them. And so I really did try to focus on ensuring any time I did have with them was quality time. Yeah. Um, to do that, though, you have to make sure you're not like exhausted when you get to that point in your week, which I'm constantly kind of working at <laughs> um, and making sure that actually you have the energy to be able to actually you know, focus on them and spend the right amount of quality time with them. It's um, it's an enormous thing. And, you know, one of the things I loved, um, one of our other speakers, when we spoke about this, you know, people will look at you and think, how do you do it all? And I couldn't do all those things. And we're so hard on ourselves. You know, we really are so hard on ourselves a lot of the time. You know, their advice was just to, to widen the lens in terms of, Yep. When you're looking at yourself, don't expect yourself to be a fantastic mother, partner, employee and everything um, at the same time. But when you yep. look at it over a week, two weeks, three weeks, and it, it made me think of that again when you talked about that um, wonderful colleague that you sort of passed in the hallway who said, look at a long career track as well. Just take the pressure off yourself a little bit. Yeah, I think that's right. You can't be all things to all people all of the time. No, it's just, it actually doesn't work. <laughs> and you shared, um, so your husband's um, obviously working as well. And so the two of you have had to sort of navigate this together. Um, how did you do that? Well, um, it didn't start out that well. In that um, I think uh, I did have a bit of a mindset of like, I can do this, don't worry. <laughs> I can be a partner at Bain. I can be the primary sort of caregiver. I can be the one who hands over to our nanny in the morning and at night. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I did allow myself to get into a position where it was a little bit imbalanced. Yes. And not really fair. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I remember one day um, telling my husband about a comment that a peer had made which, and I can't remember the specifics of it now, but it was almost along the lines of, well, Katrina's a mother, so we can't ask her to do that. Right. Um, and I went home and I told my husband, and that was a bit of a wake-up call, I think. Mm. Um, and over time, you know, he has stepped in, and particularly when I've been travelling, has provided a lot more support. And we've been able to get to a better balance, I think. That's fantastic. Um, which has been important. <laughs> That's fantastic. The um, if I just briefly go back to the parenthood report, it's interesting because they they are looking at both parents and they're equally looking at making sure that fathers don't miss out um, on opportunities. And um, one of the sort of recommendations that report is making is twelve months paid um, parental leave that's equally shared between both parents. Um, and, and just a statistic that jumped out at me that, you know, in Sweden, 
Um, they have 69 weeks. They also obviously have higher taxes, but 45% of the claimants are men to taking the leave. And here in Australia, it's less than half a percent are men. So I don't know, without asking you necessarily to comment on the policy, might that have helped, do you think, if there was an expectation that both parents take, take leave? Yeah, I mean, I think so, because um, if both parents play a role in the very early days and weeks and months, I think that sort of cements a bit of a different approach mm. in the future. And you're, you know, you both have that experience of being with your kids and they're really tiny. Mm. Um, <coughs> and, you know, having been through that, you know, whether it's trips to the doctor or or activities and if that has been a shared experience I think it's more likely to be a shared parenting experience going forward yeah um, so yeah I think um I think that would have been good <laughs> I love your um vulnerability and sort of you know being prepared to share with us how tough it is navigating through all of that so thank you so much for sharing I know that will resonate with so many people the final question that I'm asking everybody in the series, um, I would love to ask you now, is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like now and does it need to change? Well, <clears throat> I think um, it does come down to, when I think of the word brave, I do think of the word confidence. And so I think it starts by building a sense of confidence in yourself and your own abilities and your aspirations and being very clear on that. Mm. And then I think um, helping others have confidence in you because you've been clear with them on what you need and what you're aspiring to do. <coughs> and without those things being in place, you know, it's very difficult to be brave. <laughs> um, I do think that, you know, this topic we explored earlier of role models is very important. Um, and people being able to see a diverse range of role models. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just one type of person that I need to be to be a successful leader. That there's a range of different models and I can find one that appeals to me. And then having more open conversations about the pathways to those roles with one another is very important. Um, so I'm, I don't know that it necessarily needs to change, but I do think that kind of concept of more than one path, more than one role model is extremely important. And um, it's probably hard for everyone to be brave without that being in place. <laughs> Um, I lied to you that that was the last question because your answer made me think of another one. Um, and that is just when you talk about confidence. You know, we um, there's research that shows that when it comes to um, salary increases, as an example, men are 40% more likely to ask. And when women do ask, they ask for 30% less. And it just... it can't help but occur to me that there's there's a confidence issue going on in there somewhere. I guess I just wanted to ask, how do you um, 
you know, what's your perspective on that? And, um, you know, what should we be doing about it? If we know that that's the case, what should we be doing about that? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's a tough topic. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to, subscribe to gender stereotypes. I think for anyone who feels um, underconfident, um, you know, there is, I think, this topic of sponsors can play a role. So having other people who believe in us, who we are honest with and help us uncover and kind of focus on our strengths, mm -hmm. I think is very important. <clears throat> and then for organisations to, to make that possible and make sure there's not just one sort of cookie cutter view on what makes a good leader, but recognising a range of different strengths in mm. different models um, so I think it's the answer kind of lies both within ourselves um, and within broader organizations I don't think you can have one without the other and and build confidence and have people no. build confidence no so there really is one that is a mindset piece and the other that is really a structural um, a structural challenge or opportunity so Katrina, thank you so much, um, as I said, for being willing to share your experiences and your journey. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I just want to thank you so, so much for being willing to join the conversation today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.